Leslie uh, is, a, is a former uh, stranger, stranger Genius Award winner, and she's the author of a lot of books. She describes herself, which Brendan told me is like very strictly, has to be, you know, perfect, accidental theologist, and it's theologist that, she, that, that he said you were sort of picky about. But uh, so Leslie is an accidental theologist. Uh, some of her books include The First Muslim, The Story of Muhammad, and then uh, Jezebel, The Untold Story of the Bible's Harlot Queen, and, uh, and others as well. Uh, she, we, we had an interesting conversation this morning um, about when she was living in, in Jerusalem, and uh, I, well, and visited Tel Aviv and visited Neumann's wife. Anyway, she's got some great things to say. She's been a reporter uh, for a while, a journalist and writer, and has a, a lot of uh, uh, background, including in terms of uh, what was presented somehow, which really intrigued me, is uh, somehow interested in the writings of the philosopher Julia Kristeva, right? Did you say Kristeva or Kristeva? Kristeva, yeah. <laughs> so, um, Leslie will speak, and then we'll have uh, lunch, and then we'll continue. So, and I also had my first failure of the day. I probably had several, but the first failure was I was not able to get the speakers for the photograph, right? So, we've, we are now going to, again, I'm warning you, we're going to assemble after Leslie's talk. So, please join, join me in welcoming uh, Leslie Hazelton. Oh boy, this is setting me up for failure, isn't it? <laughs> uh, people have been asking me what I'm going to talk about or what this talk is about, and I say, I don't know. <laughs> I'm hoping maybe you can tell me afterwards. I'm kind of finding my way here. But here's, it starts with this. It starts one actually very lovely Sunday morning this past January. When I was working out, I was all healthy and muscly and stretchy and doing my workout and so on. When I began to feel like someone had punched me on the right arm, right here, right below the deltoid. Now, I didn't think anyone had punched me on the right arm. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's the kind of thing you think you might remember if somebody had. But um, so I kept on exercising, trying to work it out except it wouldn't work out. And in fact, it got worse. It got so much worse that within a few days, I couldn't move my right arm more than about two or three inches forwards or backwards or sideways. It just kind of hung there, right? And if I wanted to move it out of the way, I had to do a kind of Dr. Strangelove thing and grab it with my left arm and go like that. Right? And then it began to hurt. And when I say hurt, I mean seriously, painkiller, impossible to sleep hurt. It doubled over in agony spasms, which is when I decided it might be an idea to go to the doctor. Mm. So one month, three doctors, and countless totally pointless x-rays later. <laughs> Pause for very happy dog. It was diagnosed as something called Parsonage-Turner syndrome, so named for the two doctors who originally identified it. Well, I mean, Parsonage? <laughs> <laughs> it 
to a resolutely agnostic Jew. This Church of England association seemed, you know, a particularly unkind touch. You know, it kind of added insult to the injury. Now, Parsonage Turner is listed under rare diseases, which apparently means simply that there's not much research on it. And nobody knows what causes it, let alone what cures it. Which is why the doctors kept on asking me, are you sure someone didn't hit you in the arm? <laughs> what is known is that it's an assault on the muscles of the upper arm, or rather on the nerves of the muscles of the upper arm, which is the first time since my polite English childhood that I've ever suffered from a lack of nerve. <laughs> and I tell you all this because for a while there, since I'm right-handed, Parsonage Turner meant that I couldn't even sign my name, let alone type. Now, all writers know that writing is an intensely physical act. It's exhausting. But I don't think I realized just how physical it was until this thing hit. Realized the connection that is between my head and the page. The simple physical fact that the message goes directly down my arm, nerve by nerve, muscle by muscle, kind of like itsy bitsy spider in reverse. And if you break that connection, you're left unarmed or disarmed. Whichever way you want to call it, the result was, or it felt like, the most disgustingly literal case of writer's block ever. And I had no idea I was even capable of being that literal. Now, this would have been intensely frustrating at any time, but I had a book all ready to be written. All the research was done, all the notes made. And by notes, I mean Didion-type notes, with extended riffs and everything from religion to, as magic to the megalomaniac search for a theory of everything. In effect, I had 500 pages of messiness, just waiting to be persuaded into some kind of order, to be crafted, you know, shaped, and properly written or improperly written, only I couldn't. I physically couldn't. Which is when it occurred to me that there just might be something more than a physical syndrome at play here. This book is one that's been haunting me for a long time, by which I mean that I first tried writing it 40 years ago and wisely gave up, resolving to come back to it, possibly unwisely, when I'm 84, which is how I heard the Beatles song. <laughs> I guess you could say my hearing's not too good. And now here I am, almost halfway between 64 and 84, and since I might not last to 84, I've got to throw another classic song into the mix here, it's now or never. <laughs> so the story, and this is a true story, by which I mean it actually happened, which seems to be a qualification that you need to make nowadays. <laughs> the story is of how in the middle of the 17th century, just as the Enlightenment was getting underway, Jews everywhere throughout the Middle East, North Africa, and Europe were losing their collective mind. It's the story, that is, of Shabtai Tzvi, a manic depressive rabbinical scholar in what is now Turkey, who at the age of 40 declared himself the Messiah. 
first coming of the Messiah, of course, this being Judaism. And how a hell of a lot of people believed him, or rather believed in him. In fact, he gathered such a large following, including quite a few excitable Christians who mistook the first coming for the second, that it began to disrupt the smooth workings of the Ottoman Empire. So Shabtai was arrested and hauled before the Grand Vizier, who was like the prime minister to the Sultan. And I realize it's tempting here to think of a sort of Jesus Pontius Pilate kind of confrontation, since the last thing the Grand Vizier wanted was to have his prisoner put to death and thus make a martyr of him, or maybe a messiah of him. So what he did is he gave Shabtai the usual choice given to political prisoners by the Ottomans. Either be tortured very slowly and very agonizingly to death, or convert to Islam. Thank you. <laughs> Which is when Shabtai did not do what Jesus would do. <laughs> Being in neither a manic nor a depressed phase at that particular moment in time, and thus with no illusions as to either invulnerability or immortality, he converted and thereby established himself as the most notorious of Judaism's long history of false messiahs. Now, objectively speaking, a book on Shabtai's fee sounds like a natural for me. I mean, someone who's, someone who's dubbed herself an accidental theologist, a psychologist by training, fascinated not so much by religion itself as by what Julia Kristeva called this incredible need to believe, a Jewish writer who lived in and reported from Jerusalem for 13 years and whose 12 books, I think it might be 13, because you kind of lose count when you have that many books like you do with that many kids, um, whose books include a biography of Muhammad and whose last one was an agnostic manifesto. But subjectively speaking, it's not at all so clear. I'd say that I'm with Kafka when he wrote that the Messiah will come only when he's no longer needed, though that might require a gender change in the pronoun, <laughs> only when she's no longer needed. And even then, it kind of seeds its argument in its formulation because that definite article, the Messiah, assumes the plausible existence of such a person or creature, and I make no such assumption. In fact, I think of it as a dangerous idea. The Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah, means one who's been anointed with oil, Mishcha. Oil that is not as ointment, but as anointment. But the word is widely understood to mean the savior, somebody who will save us from, what? From ourselves, presumably. In other words, an abdication of responsibility for our own actions or inactions, a kind of religious equivalent of the strong man syndrome. And as with the strong man syndrome, there's a rather large woo-woo factor involved here. Not least because Shabtai's messianic claim was based on the Jewish mystical tradition known as Kabbalah, or as it's pronounced here in the States, Kabbalah. 
And like most mystical systems, Kabbalah relies heavily on abstruseness. In other words, if you don't understand it, it's not because it's an incomprehensible jumble, but because you're not enlightened enough. <laughs> so the first person to seriously try to cut through the jumble, perhaps too seriously, was the German-born Israeli scholar Gershon Scholem, a philologist who'd become the big daddy of the academic study of Kabbalah and also the first professor of Jewish mysticism at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, where I took my master's in psychology, and yes, I met Shalom, Shalom or rather I was ushered into his presence to what sadly was zero effect. <laughs> it was Shalom who wrote the biography of Shabtai Tzvi. Published in 1957, it's generally acclaimed as his masterwork due in no small part to its length. <laughs> Peculiarly and precisely 1,000 pages, <laughs> including the index, replete with extensive footnotes that would have put David Foster Wallace to shame. <laughs> but as is the way with masterpieces, it turns out that not many people have actually read the Solemn biography. I do know several Jewish literati who own a copy usually prominently displayed on their bookshelves as a sign of intellectual soulfulness. And a few have actually cracked it open, only to be utterly deterred by the first 150 pages, which are a Germanically dry attempt to establish Kabbalah as a systematic theology, basically to give it academic respectability, which is almost certainly the last thing that intrigues most people about Kabbalah. And when I first read the Shalom book, after my non-meeting meeting with him, my own intrigue was as a psychologist. Because though Shalom made all the usual huffing and puffing about the dangers of diagnosing someone at a distance of three centuries, Shabtai was clearly manic depressive. And manic depression, now called bipolar disorder, is fascinating, unless, as Ellen well knows, you have the misfortune to suffer from it. I could see how, when he was manic, Shabtai really was convinced that he was the Messiah. I mean, you'd have to be manic to think that, right? And I could also see how, when he was depressed, he knew damn well he wasn't the Messiah. But by then he was trapped by his own following, by the hopes and fervent belief of all those around him. He was hoist on his own petard, as it were. And I felt sorry for him. I saw him as a victim of what I call the Messiah complex. But as I struggled with my arm, it was the writer in me that was simultaneously intrigued and dismayed, though somewhat less by Shabtai himself, because however strange a figure he remains, so strange that at times I'd find myself wondering if he even really existed, if he wasn't a fantasy construction of those who believed in him. However fascinating he was, what got to me now was the extraordinary literalness of the whole enterprise of the Shabtai movement, which seemed somehow related to both the state of my arm and the state of this country. The Ur text of the Kabbalah is the Zohar, which could and probably should be translated as the shining. 
The Zohar purports to be written by a third century sage in Palestine, though in fact it was written by a Spanish rabbinical scholar in the 13th century. In much the same way, the five books of Moses are a miracle of authorship, authorship since Moses dies in the second one, <laughs> as are the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke, all written after the deaths of their supposed authors. In polite academic terms, these are called pseudo-epigraphical texts, though there are, of course, other terms one might use. Uh, at first glass, at first glance, the Zohar isn't exactly a cuddly kind of mysticism. It meanders and doesn't seem to make much sense at all. But it can seem downright sex positive, which is why Kabbalah has achieved a kind of Madonna feminist chic. This is mainly due to the Shekhinah, which literally means presence, as in the divine presence in the earthly realm. And the Shekhinah is the female aspect of the Godhead, the male aspect apparently being beyond making himself present. And the world was originally kept in good order by the two aspects, male and female, happily making out in the Jerusalem temple, which was their bedroom. But since the destruction of the temple 2,000 years ago, the Shekhinah has been in exile longing to be reunited with her partner in marital bliss, which will be brought about by the coming not of the male godhead, but of the Messiah. Yeah! <laughs> now, the idea of a female aspect of the godhead evidently has immense appeal for those who assume that the existence of ancient goddesses meant that women were more respected or more powerful then than now. They fall for the idea of something that if, if something is ancient, whether medicine or wisdom or whatever, it must ipso facto be good, thus demonstrating a kind of ahistorical fact-free nostalgia for an imagined, an imagined world of innocence. No matter that, as Thomas, Thomas Hobbes put it, life actually was, for most people, you know this, nasty, brutish, and short, and especially so for women. Goddesses might have run things in the world of divinity, but in the real world of human beings, uh, not so. So it may not come as a surprise that if you were to read the whole of the Zohar, by which I mean not the prettily edited introductions to or wisdoms of, but the three dense tomes in English translation, which, by the way, you'll find in the library here at Smoke Farm, you would come face to face with the gap, in fact, with the rather abysmal abyss between the idealized female and actual females. The Shekhinah might be adorable, but real women were untrustworthy, scheming liars to be kept under strict control, tools of Satan like Eve, or threatening figures like Lilith, who in Talmudic law came before Eve, but steadfastly refused to take a subordinate position, both sexually and psychologically, and thus was banished to the realm of darkness, there to give birth to the demons who haunt men in the night as succubi, making them emit their precious bodily fluids. Shades of Dr. Strangelove again. 
which is how come certain passages in the Zohar read rather like mystical wet dreams. Or maybe that should be mystical wet nightmares. But the thing is, you know, whatever Gershon Shalom thought, you don't engender a mass movement such as Shabtai did by cutting out women or by relying on abstruse texts. Because then, as now, many Jews might have heard of the Zohar, but very few had actually read it. So the most popular kind of Kabbalah today, as back in Shabtai's time, was what's known as ecstatic or practical Kabbalah. Ecstasy and practice, as it were. The Kabbalah of magical incantations, of amulets and red string bracelets, of mystical trances and hidden meanings. And here is where it gets literally literal. Because a major part of practical Kabbalah is based on an alphanumeric system called gematria. Now, gematria is an Aramaic word uses the fact that Semitic alphabets are also number systems. That is, Aleph is one, Bet is two, and so on, to multiples of ten and then hundreds. And a similar system exists in the other great Semitic language, Arabic. It's basically a code, with the key being letters as numbers. And the code book, anyone want to guess? was the Hebrew Bible, of course. Or if you happen to be a Muslim numerologist, it's the Arabic Quran. Because if you incline to mysticism, or maybe I should say mystification, the Bible or the Quran does not consist of mere words. These are just the outer superficial meaning. There is hidden meaning for those who care to discover it. The Talmud has it that the, word, the world was created by the Hebrew letters of the Bible. You can't get any stronger than that for the power of writing, huh? But that really is the power of writing, not of words. Writing as a kind of magic act. Because not just each word, but each letter of each word is considered a manifestation of God. The letters become, as Shalom put it, a means of deciphering, and I quote, the secret of God. God being, it seems, a very secretive entity. So the upshot, the upshot is a kind of divine conspiracy theory, decipherable only to the initiated, which as far as I can see from my agnostic perch, translates to the absurdly obsessive compulsive. So bear with me here, because we're going to get just a little bit trippy. <laughs> if you haven't already. <laughs> How to break the code. Ignore the words. They're just the outer disguise. We're after deep, hidden meaning. So instead, use the numbers. For instance, take the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah. Add up the values of the letters, Mem, Shin, Yud, Chet, and you get 40 plus 300 plus 10 plus 8, which comes to 358. Okay. Now take, say, my name, or your name in Hebrew, and add up the values of the letters. And since that probably won't come out to 358, keep playing and fiddling around until it does. Spell your name differently, or add in your middle name. Use your nickname, or your title, or anything that describes who you are, or an acronym of your title, or your full name. Or add a hey, 
HaMashiach, the Messiah, for an extra five points if anyone's keeping score by now, and see if that works better. And keep playing around this way, and mathematical probability dictates that sooner or later, you'll come up with either 358 or 363. <laughs> Et voila, the wow factor in full effect. You may now declare yourself, or I may now declare myself the Messiah. And that's just on the simplest level. <laughs> but why keep it simple? I mean, World War II code breakers had nothing on these medieval Kabbalists. It doesn't have to be the word Messiah. It could be the one we've been waiting for, or the gift of God, or the one whose time has come, or any other descriptor or significant phrase. And you have the whole of the Bible, or the Quran, to choose from. You could use the first word or phrase of any particular verse, or the first letters of each word of a verse, or the last letters of each word of a verse, or the first letter of the first word, the second letter of the second word, and so on. Or the first letter of the first word, the last letter of the second word, and work your way outward and inward again. And there are any number of ways that you can play with this. Which is to say that by using gematria, you can make absolutely anything seem mystically significant. You can create meaning where there is none. You can play God. And one extra delicious Dan Brown kind of touch to all this. Since Semitic alphabets are shorter than Western ones, they run out of letters by the time you get to 1,000, which means that thousands are omitted, thus giving significance to the fact that the year the Shabtai movement peaked and the year he converted to Islam was 1666. That is, 666, the rough beast indeed. Now, of course, that was the Christian era, not the Jewish one, but as you've surely gathered by now, if you're into numerology, there's no such thing as too much of a leap. <laughs> now, I do think Dan Brown, in his way, is quite brilliant. I know you never expected me to say that, but he is. He gets that people want this kind of stuff, that they love the idea of deciphering the secrets of God, just as much today as they did in the 17th century, because secrets, he knows, are sexy. But what's a writer whose name is not Dan Brown to do with it all? I mean, I can see the attraction for a philologist like Shalom. In fact, my copy of his book on Shabtai is full of oys and oives scribbled in the margin every time he cites yet another document containing gematria proof of Shabtai's messiahship. But for a writer who values words not as objects, but as means of communication, and who values precision, who values, <laughs> who values meaning, who values resonance, how do you use words to describe a system that voids words of actual meaning? A system that actually seems to scorn meaning. And this would be enough of a dilemma for me if Kabbalah was all that was involved in the Shabtai story. But the woo-woo factor gets doubled, even tripled, when you consider the wider context, which of course I went and did. <laughs> My favorite anthropologist is Clifford Gertz who made the distinction, di distinction between thick description and thin description. And sure enough, where Shalom went thin, delving deep into Kabbalah, 
I go for thick description, which means as much context as I can absorb, which has definitely challenged my powers of absorption. It means, for instance, that, God help me, astrology also enters the picture. Because in the 17th century, that was still the largest and most popular belief system in the world, as it had been for millennia. It ran under, it ran under over, and parallel to all the other belief systems. Which, by the way, is why archaeologists keep finding zodiac mosaics on the floors of Byzantine-era synagogues throughout Israel and Palestine. And astrology's relevance to the Shabtai story, well, Shabtai was not only a name traditionally given to boys born on the Shabbat, the Sabbath, as Shabtai was. It also doubles as the Hebrew word for the planet Saturn, the largest and most powerful of what were then the seven planets, including the sun and the moon. And in 1966, in 1666, sorry, in 1666, it appears that Saturn was in powerful conjunction with Jupiter and while I'm not quite sure what powerful conjunctions mean, you kind of get the picture. More water. And it gets worse. <laughs> because going thick with the Shabtai story also involves, among other things, Sufism and the Spanish Inquisition, and the Ottomans at the gates of Vienna, and the Thirty Years' War. Has anyone ever tried to read a history of the Thirty Years' War? <laughs> I've tried quite a few of them. Uh, which had only just ended, and which had just about the whole of Europe at war with itself, to the degree that you know, the warlords keep on changing sides and so on. I, and it all makes, the Thirty Years' War makes what's happening now in Syria and Afghanistan look quite simple by comparison. And of course, overarching everything, the psychology of this incredible need to believe, which so enthusiastically denies reality in favor of desire and fantasy. So here's what it all felt like to me when Parsonage Turner hit. You remember the chariot scene in Ben-Hur? Yeah? Well, instead of a mere four horses like Charlton Heston had, my two-wheel chariot is hurtling along, or being hurtled along, behind a dozen wild horses, all of them foaming madly at the mouth, thank you, with sweat, you know, huge flecks of sweat flying off their backs into my eyes, blinding me, every single one of them racing as fast as it can in a different direction, and me hanging onto the reins for dear life, fully aware that at any moment the wheels are going to come off and I'm going to end up floundering in the dust, battered and bruised. And here was my question. Could I strong arm these wild horses into a cohesive whole in my unarmed, disarmed state? Why couldn't I just leap off and let the horses go? Does every book need to be written? And most painfully, at this moment in political time, why write at all? This book was supposed to be my escape. I thought it would see me safely through the years of the current regime in DC, that I could focus in on the 17th century and thus escape the 21st. 
Instead, when words appear to have been so disvalued, I mean disvalued, not devalued, disvalued, emptied of all meaning, when would means wouldn't, true means false, and fact loses out to fabrication, I found myself spluttering with outrage, rendered speechless, wordless. And what I was dealing with, I suspect, was a crisis of faith, not religious faith, and not even faith in myself as a writer, but a crisis of faith in words, in the value of words, the real value, not the numerical value. A very rightly crisis of faith then, being acted out on my own body. And like so many crises of faith, to a large extent, a privileged indulgence. Because all this and more has been acted out countless times on other writers' bodies and in far worse ways. Now, I'm taking a swerve here, but it's one I think important to take. Because words can actually gain meaning and power, even and perhaps especially for those who seem to most despise them and try hardest to distort and repress them. In the late 80s, when I was still living in New York, I sat on the Freedom to Write Committee of Penn, the International Writers' Organization, part of whose remit is to work together with Amnesty International to advocate for writers imprisoned, tortured, and even killed for what they have written. <coughs> what they wrote, that is, was so powerful and so threatening to the powers that be that they had to be forcibly silenced. Now, Philip Roth noted this in his introduction to the Penguin series, Writers from the Other Europe, in Eastern Europe, that is, back in the 70s. In the West, we could write anything and simply be ignored. But under a repressive regime, something as seemingly ignorable as a poem, now even a blog post or a tweet, could assume enormous importance. In other words, and to sum up Roth badly, because it's decades since I read the essay, but it stayed with me. We have the irony that where there was the least freedom of speech, speech was often considered the most powerful. Where words were the most repressed, they could also have the most meaning. It was almost as though repression enhanced the power of the written word. So much so that written words could not only get writers thrown into prison, it could also get them out of prison. Like the Malawian poet Jack Mapanje, for whom we organized a postcard campaign. This was the late 80s, so postcards. Uh, we wrote the text, respectively, you know, respectfully requesting the national treasure, internationally admired, and so on and so on. And we got thousands of people to send cards off to the interior minister of Malawi who was so impressed by the mounting sackfuls of paper in his office that he actually went to the prison where Mapanji was being kept and told him that he was going to be released, and he was released. But then, of course, I think about this now, and I realize it wasn't the words that had value, but the sheer number of them. So we're back to numerical value again, which maybe has always been the case. 
I mean, sometimes I think that the longer the book, the more likely it is to be called a masterpiece. <laughs> and of course, I'm thinking of Sholem's biography of, of, of Shabtai Tzvi, but I'm also thinking of uh, David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, when I think his book on infinity was far closer to masterful, and that's a very short book. Numbers of words, then, especially now, when there are so many words, when we're flooded with them, deluged with them, overwhelmed by them. Now's when that what's the point question might be all the more tempting and extraordinarily self-defeating. Self-defeating not only because it erodes self-respect, it makes us disloyal to ourselves, to who we are, to the whole venture of thought and questioning, let alone to those elsewhere in the world who risk their lives for the right to vote or suffer torture for writing a poem. Because being a writer means that you place your faith in words and that it's important to keep, to keep faith with them, to not remain silent, to speak as much truth as we are capable of, to seek out fresh ways of thinking and seeing, no matter the risks or the difficulties. So that said, back to my small dilemma, here's where I am right now, after several months of intensive physiotherapy, several months, that is, of what I think must be the most humbling thing I've ever undertaken. I mean, it was like, you want me to do what? I'd say, you know, lift your arm like that. How? <laughs> the kind of movement you'd normally take so for granted that it requires no thought, no effort. You just do it without even thinking about it. I'd try, I'd fail, I'd try again, I'd fail, and kind of almost despair, and try again. But as humbling as it is, PT is also extraordinarily effective. My arm is nearly back, two years ahead of the estimated duration of Parsonage Turner. And every day there's some small taken-for-granted thing that I can do that I couldn't do the day before. I can reach for a glass on the shelf. I can fill the glass with water and lift it. I can drink from it right-handed if there isn't a microphone in the way. I can do push-ups even if they're still wobbly. I can almost do sun salutations. And I can sign my name. I can type. I can write. Which means the book is back on my dinner table and on the floor, and on the couch. It's spread out from my desk and taken over the whole of my physical space, as books in progress inevitably do. And I'm no longer playing with titles like The Curse of Shabtai or The Messiah's Curse. <laughs> no longer joking, or perhaps it was only half joking, that there was something conspiring against my writing this book, my own little nonsensical conspiracy theory. Now, this encounter with Parsonage Turner has made me all the more determined to write this book. Because when something you hold dear, something you value so much that it's an integral part of who you are, is taken away from you, when it's withheld, whether by circumstance or by fate or by human fear or stupidity, add your own words here, then you can no longer take it for granted. And if you're fortunate enough to have it returned to you, you then cherish it all the more. When words have been disvalued, that is, God damn it, you find new value in them. So I still don't know if I can pull this book together, 
But as friends remind me, that's nothing new. I mean, every book feels like a huge leap of faith, a whole new mountain to climb. It's risky, no guarantees. It may work out and it may not. And you're kind of daring yourself constantly. But those 12 wild horses, now I say, bring them on. I don't know if my arm is strong enough. I don't know if my mind is strong enough to come to that. But there's only one way to find out. And now that I've been foolish enough to talk about it publicly, <laughs> that's what I'll be doing. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.